Oh, you get to have me again. Yeah, isn't that cool? I can't tell you how nervous I get and how excited I get to be here before you. I get so excited I wish Steve was here. (laughs) But he's not. I would like to share with you this morning uh, choosing your poison. Uh, I started off with, with blessed or cursed. And then I had, I don't know, maybe a half a dozen or a dozen other titles for this, for this little speakeasy that we're having here. Everything that we're going to concern ourselves with this morning has to do with Psalm 1. You have your Bibles in, in, your, in your pews there. Just turn to Psalm 1. And I'll try to remember what I'm going to say. I have notes up here, but you know. They only matter if I look at them. So, some of the information that I have here will come from from Charles Spurgeon out of his uh, Treasury of David, three-volume set on the Psalms. The Psalms for me for years, along with Proverbs, have been a daily routine. Uh, Every month I go through the Psalms. Every month I go through the Proverbs. Uh, Because I have a short memory, it, it really helps me. Some things stick and some things will stick later on. But this psalm, and everything that I've read, for some reason, they picked it as the first psalm, not for any, they say not for any particular reason, but what some of the greats of old, going back 100 to 250 years old, have said about the psalm, it is, it is perfect as an introduction to the psalms, as, as one entire sermon. Everything that it has to say and deal with puts it up front for the entire Bible. It points, it points to what the godly man should be like, and then it gives us a contrast of what the ungodly man is like. It gives us a view of where the godly man will end up, and then, of course, it, it gives us a contrast of where the ungodly man will end up. This blessed man, the word that is, that is used there, it is, it is a word that is, in its root, means, means blessedness. It's, it's weird how they, they put it in a, pure, a plural form, but it, it is best understood in, in, in that term, blessedness. The way, the way the first part is described, the word that is used for blessed is the man, is more in terms of how blessed is that man. And it gets, real, it gets real emphatic in that that man means that man in a hundred, that man in a thousand, that man in ten thousand. The psalmist goes and he actually points to that man. He says, is that particular man? If I was here and I said, I would be pointing, Eric, you know, to this man out of this, this entire group, this man, How blessed is this man if he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, if he does not stand in the way of sinners, and if he does not sit in the seat of scoffers. So, the psalm itself is is divided into two portions. Verse 1 through the end of verse 3 is the first. The second portion is is verse 4 to the end of verse 6. 
no charge. We, we get in the first part. David, Spurgeon says that David sets out to show us the joy and the blessedness of the man who is committed to being a follower and not just a fan, some enthusiastic admirer, someone who's just waving, waving the penance, you know, of yay Jesus, yay Jesus, you know. But this man is committed to God Almighty. The second part gives us a contrast uh, of the state and the character of the ungodly. It reveals the future and describes in, in, in telling language of what his demise will be. So, it starts out with a benediction. How blessed is this man? We can compare it to, to Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12, where we have the, the Beatitudes. When you get a chance, uh, you can look them up. It is, blessed is he, blessed is he, blessed is he, blessed is he. And as you look at Matthew, all these things that this person determines to become before God, he is blessed. It is that man, that man in a thousand, that man in 100,000, that man is blessed. And here we have this man. The word, the word that is, is um, the word that is used, and right now I'm, I'm with, with Steve, I'm, I'm learning a little bit of Hebrew. I'm taking a little Hebrew course. It's, it's, it's helping. You know, I've got some minor things down. The word, the word heish, or heish, is, is an emphatic word. That's where they get that man. This is the man among a thousand who lives for the accomplishment, right? He lives for the accomplishment for the end of which God has created him. If you are that man, your every fiber thinks of what God has for you in this life. And you are willing to step out and, and do whatever, whenever, wherever, in order to see God's word accomplished. God's work that he has set before you be done, his will, in your lifetime. This is, this is who this man, this blessed man is. So, let me, let me point out a few things that have to do with happiness. These things are true of you and me. And the first one is that God has made you and me, he created us for happiness. But he created us for true and lasting happiness. Not the happiness of, of, of being at Mimi's and getting, getting their, 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 their pudding, their bread pudding and, and a hot cup of decaf coffee. Not that, hap not that happiness. Not the happiness of opening up a, a, a gift on Christmas morning, getting what you want, and six months later you don't know where that gift is at. That's not the happiness that we're talking about here. But this is something that God has given us in our hearts, longing for, and he wants, he wants it to be true and he wants it to be lasting. So, number one, he made us for happiness. Number two, every man feels a desire to be happy. If we had to raise a hand, I'm sure we wouldn't get one. It says, every morning that I wake up, it's, I want nothing to do with happiness. I want no joy in my life. I would just rather, you know, be in my pity party. I'm fine. No one here. We all, we all desire happiness. All humans, all human beings hate misery. Again, show of hands, how many of you really love misery? First thing in the morning, you know, you drop to your knees, God, please bring misery into my life this morning, and I'll be good. Doesn't work that way. We don't. We would rather have happiness. 
Number four, happiness is the grand object of pursuit for all men. Especially for us in this culture, in this country. Isn't that one of, one of our grand statements in our Constitution? We have this, this, this inalienable right to pursue happiness. We're born into this, into this culture this way. We, our parents tell us that we have this right to pursue it. But the heart is so perverted that it searches for happiness where it cannot be found. And we search in things which are naturally and morally unfit to communicate true and lasting happiness. I believe that Psalm 1 begins to paint a picture and direct, and direct us in the path of knowing what true and lasting happiness is. So, he who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. <clears throat> I want to I talk about a few words. I want to talk about the word ungodly, the word sinner, the word scorn, scornful. And then three words after that we'll talk about walk. We'll talk about stand, and we'll talk about sit, real quick. And, and this is the makeup of the ungodly person. The ungodly man, this, 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 this word ungodly, the root means to be unjust, rendering to no one his due. With this man, this woman, hold, withholds from God, he, with, he withholds from society, and he even withholds from himself what is due. This person, this person walks with God, with God, or walks without God in this world. He is one who travels, who journeys in this world, and takes, takes none, no notice of God at all. Doesn't want anything to do with him. Sinner. This word, the root, means to miss the mark. We've all heard this. First time I heard the word sin, it's, somebody told me it meant to miss the mark talked of an archer, you know, sending his arrow out. The target's over there, but he purposely turns over here and he sends his arrows. That is to miss the mark. That's a sin. But the sinner, the sinner is the one that passes over prohibited limits. Transgression comes in. I, I thought of this. I thought of two hunters. And they're out there and each one shoots a deer. And they're following the deer and they see that the both of their deers jump over this fence and they get to the fence and the fence says, no trespassing. The sinner has some, some sense and he says, I shot, I shot him, I know he's bleeding, but he went over the fence, private property, I can't go there. And he walks away. The ungodly man does. The sinner, this, 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 this person, comes in, he shoots the deer, he watches it, and he, he watches it cross the fence. He looks at it, my deer, he sees the no trespassing sign, he says, so what? Jumps the fence and he goes and grabs his deer. So we have the ungodly, he walks without God, we have the sin, the sinner, who prefers not only not to walk with God and not to do good, but he prefers the evil. So the former, the former is without God, but not desperately wicked. But the latter adds outward transgression to his sinfulness that's in his heart. You can see there's a progression here. The godly, not so bad. He's just walking in this world without God. The sinner, oh, he knows. 
and he would prefer to do evil as opposed to good. And then we have the scornful. The meaning here is to mock or to deride. This one, this man, this woman, has no, has no religion, lives in open breach of God's laws. He turns revelation, the immortality of the soul, and the existence of an invisible world into ridicule. We can find him in the book of Jude. He is at the very minimum a deist, and he endeavors to dissolve as much as he can the bonds of moral obligation in society. As a sinner exceeds the ungodly, you guessed it, this guy exceeds them both. So we see the progression. Not so bad, but without God. Kind of bad, could care less about God. And this one here could, get, could care less about anyone. He just thinks of himself. So let's talk about three words that we're going to see. Walk, stand, and sit. The ungodly man is one who is uninfluenced by God. He doesn't hesitate to walk toward sin or towards iniquity, what he knows it's wrong. The ungodly man sits in his own counsel. He has his own choice of counselors. He's, picked, he's handpicked them. Those that agree with him in everything and will be willing to do anything he wants to do, that's his counsel. He has his own way. He, uh, he's not concerned about religion. He could care less about his own salvation and even less about yours and anyone who's hanging around him. Gives no thought to it. He counsels and advises those that are with him, and this is what he has to say. He tells them, hey, don't trouble yourself with reading the Bible. Don't worry about praying to a God who isn't there. Don't worry about, about, about repenting of your sins. All that doesn't count. Take it easy. Work your work. Do what you have to do. And you'll work out fine in this life. You'll even have some happiness here. Don't worry about those other things. You'll be fine. Blessed is the man, by the way, who does not, who does not hang in the company of this particular person. So, I don't know how Steve does this. The sinner. The sinner is the one, we have the ungodly, then we have the sinner. The sinner is the one who adds ungodliness to his transgression. The sinner stands in inequity. He doesn't just walk toward it. He's, all, he's in the puddle, and he wants to be in there. The sinner has his own particular way of transgressing. One could be a drunkard. One could be a drug addict. One could be a, a, a sex addict. One could be just plain old dishonest. But, it's, but he's, one of these, he's one of these guys who doesn't have all the vices. He just has some particular vices. But it's funny about, about this particular man and this particular woman, is that they look at their own vice as not so bad, but they can hate somebody else's vice. You have the one that's, say, an alcoholic, and he'll say, I'm not so bad. I don't do drugs. And you have the drug addict saying, yeah, I do drugs, but you know what? I don't get into all that sex stuff. Not realizing that each one of them has their own particular sins that capture them. They're stuck in that sin and they can look at somebody else's sin as worse. It's amazing to me how, how we do that, but we do. Now, 
the scornful. A deist, an atheist, a hardcore uh, evolutionist, especially in our day, those who make a mockery of everything sacred. The scornful man sits in this way of sin, and he becomes comfortable in that sin. The scorner has his seat, he has his, his throne of scorn, his seat of mockery, he has his lazy boy of, of pride, and, and, and making, making a mockery of everything that is sacred and religious. The scorner has brought in reference to himself all religion and all moral and all ethical feelings, and he's brought them to an end. He sits down, and he's, he's, he's a confirmed, impious person, and he makes a mockery even of sin. His conscience is seared. He is a believer in all unbelief. In Psalm 14, I don't know if that's coming up or not, but in Psalm 14, you take the first, first couple of verses there, and, and, and the psalmist starts off with, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. See, this is the scornful man. He has come to that part of saying, there is no God. These folks are corrupt, their deeds are vile, and there is no good in them. Not my words. So, the one who walks according to the counsel of the ungodly will soon find himself standing and amazed in the way of the sinner. He'll see the mode of operation. He'll be, he'll be enticed. But he won't move away from it. And soon enough, this person will be caught off guard. And before you know it, he's sitting in the same seat with the scornful. Mocking everything that's religious, everything that's good, everything that's pure. Because it doesn't fit his sinful heart. In, uh, in James chapter 1, interestingly enough, it, it, it gives us a definition of, of, of this progression of sin. Of how we are enticed by our lust, our desires, and the seed is planted. We are overtaken by temptation. And then when temptation has, has its way, sin is born. And when, and when sin is born, then death comes to view. And that's the progression that we see here from the godly, the sinner, to the scornful. God has a way of painting his pictures of how these, these ungodly people are. So the counsel, the counsel answers to the walking of the ungodly, being enticed and lured into temptation. That's the first one. The way answers to the standing of the sinner, falling for temptation, and the seed answers to the sitting of the scornful, one who is conformed and comfortable in his sin. Now the lesson here for us is that sin is progressive. One evil act can, and most often, especially if you get away with the first one, will lead to another evil act. The one who acts by bad counsel may soon do evil deeds, and he who abandons himself to evil doings may end his life in total apostasy from God or to God. When lust, as James says, when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and when sin is finished, it brings forth death. 
Solomon in Proverbs 4, 14 and 15 said, do not enter into the path of the wicked. Do not go into the way of evil men. He says to avoid it is don't even pass by it. Turn away from it and pass away from it. As the blessedness of a man is great who avoids the ways and the workers of iniquity, so the wretchedness is great of the one who acts to the contrary. To him, Spurgeon said, the reverse, we have to reverse the words of David. Cursed is the man who walks in the counsel of the wicked. Cursed is the man or woman who stands in the way of sinners. And cursed is that person who sits in the seat of scoffers. So, enough of the bad guy. The man of God. In Psalm 2, said, This man delights himself in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. This man, his will, his desire, his affection, his every motive in his heart, and every principle in his soul are on the side of God and in God's truth. He takes up the law of the Lord as the rule of his life. Pardon me. He brings all his actions and affections to this holy standard. He looks into the perfect law of liberty. He's not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word and is therefore blessed in his deeds. He not only reads to gain knowledge from God and from his holy word, but he actually reads to understand and to meditate and, and to, try to get, try to get a glimpse of what God is wanting him or wanting of him. He meditates on it. He feeds on it. He receives the sincere milk of the word. And he grows spiritually. And unto eternal life. For him, this is not, this is not a fly-by thing. A fly-by night thing. I don't just do it for 15 days and then I'm done for six months. This is not what God is calling us to. This man, this man in a thousand, this man in 100,000, he takes God's word and daily he stands before God's word. He reads it to gain knowledge, but he reads it to gain knowledge on his salvation and to grow in eternal life. And he makes it something perpetual. It's something for him that has no end until, until God calls him to end it. It's an everyday affair. It's like drinking water. It's like food. We all eat food to grab nutrients out of the food so that we grow. We grow physically. So that we take care of you know, our eyes, keep the hair that we have. Our fingernails will grow. We do all kinds of stuff, don't we? We read, hey, this will work for my fingernails, so I'm going to start taking this vitamin. Uh, we eat broccoli because it's good. It's got you know, all kinds of nutrients that we need. Uh, we, we eat beans because there's protein. You know, we eat chicken because there's... All these things we do for our body. We take God's word and we, we read it to gain the knowledge. We read it to understand salvation. We read it to understand eternal life. And we do this daily. And we do it like we're eating food and drinking drink. Because we will grow spiritually both into, into this life. Uh, in, second, in Second Peter, the, in the first chapter, there's a list, 11 verses, that will, that will acknowledge that you and I have everything we need to live this life spiritually. God has given us his most precious and divine promises in order to live this life. Make the proper decisions. Walk in, in the right manner. Talk in the right fashion. This man, this man is, is, is a tree that is planted by streams of water. 
It says that his, his fruit will show up in season. His leaf will not wither. And everything he does prosper. Will prosper. When it speaks about the tree, it speaks of a living, strong tree. One that has been purposely put where it's at. Cultivated to, to, to the high extent. Making sure it has the right nutrients, the right amount of water, the right amount of space so that the roots can grow deep. This is that, that tree. The water, the source is God. But it, but it, reminds, us, it reminds me of the, of, of the fields out in Marana, the canals that they have in order for the water to come through. And, and all it takes is just a simple uh, 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 maneuvering of, 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 uh, of a paddle of some sort. And the water can be directed any way that it needs to. And you have that water going full force. Or if, have you ever seen the pecan trees and how they water them? They flood them with water so that they have plenty of water and, and, the, and the roots go down deep. This is what God has done for us. He has purposely put us in this place to seek his word. He gives us the source of water that we need. He makes sure that we have the right space. We have all the, all the fertilizer, all the nutrients that we need to grow. And he says that our fruit will come forth in season. Your fruit, if you are this man, this woman, will always be at the ready. Whether it would be to counsel someone when they're going through trials and tribulations, you're there, you're ready. Whether it's just to take a walk with a friend, you're there and you're ready. Or you get the phone call of something that's going on. Or you're here to participate. You're called to, to, to teach. You're called to, to counsel. You're called to lead. You're ready. God has prepared you in such a way, if you are this man, this woman, that your fruit will show. It will not hang on the... Hey, this last frost, how many people left the fruit on the trees just to wither? I saw that all over my neighborhood. I took the fruit off. You and I, if we are purposed in our, in our hearts and our minds to be this, this man, this woman, our fruit will be ready. No matter what the trial, no matter what the crisis, we will be ready. And God, God is serious when he says that everything we do, everything we put our hands to, our minds to, our thoughts to, our prayers to, will succeed. Nothing done in God's fashion will be at a loss. Nothing. Your prayers just don't go up into, in, into the air. When we pray, and we pray for those that are hurting, we pray for those that are sick, those that are in hospital, we pray for those that are in school that need you know, for the, for the test. We pray for those daily that, be, that belong to our family. We expect God to answer those prayers. We expect God to work through us, to work through them, in however he will. But we are those that are pray, that pray and we pray with expectation. Do we not? So, here's the bottom end. This I know for sure, that God, he enjoys blessing his creation. He enjoys blessing those that belong to him. But you must be blessable. And this is what I mean. Number one, you and I need to have discernment. We need to make sure that we avoid the steps that lead to sin. We need to make sure we don't consider sin walking toward its path. 
We need to make sure that we don't contemplate sin, standing in the puddle and thinking about how nice it feels. We need to make sure that we are not getting comfortable in our sin. These things, if we follow these things, God, we become those that are blessable. Blessing involves delighting in God's word. The word guides us. It rejoices our hearts. Meditation, again, to our inner person is what digestion is to our bodies. Blessing involves dependence. Our spiritual roots have to go down deep to the resources of God's grace so that the fruit that comes forth is God's fruit. In verse 4, the, the, the passage begins that not so the, God, the ungodly, not so. A double, a double negative there. So that we realize that these things that belong to the godly are not so with the ungodly. He says that they are like the chaff blown by the wind. We've all seen those pictures of, of the winnowing of wheat. They throw the wheat up into the air. The winds are blowing. The chaff is so light, the sin, the sinful person, so light that it just vacates and the seed drops to the floor. There are those the ungodly the sinner and the scornful that will not stand in the judgment. When I first used to read that particular verse, I used to think that they're just, they're not going to hang out in the, in the assembly of judgment. They just won't be there. But I realize now that what it, what it truly means is, is when they come before God and they will stand in that judgment, their knees are going to give out. They'll see the judgment before them They'll have, they'll have perfect recall, but they'll have no excuse because everything that God will say about who they are will be true, and they'll, they'll acknowledge that. And it will be a sight, and it will be something awful to their ears. I see their knees melting before them. I see them fainting, but I see them fainting without losing consciousness. They're going to hear every word that God has to say about who they were, who they are, and where they're going. In, there were, in, in, in the olden days, in some Jewish circles, in some Christian circles, that, and in today, unfortunately, in some cultic circles, that the ungodly, the sinner, and the scornful will not have a resurrection at all. They would just be annihilated. Poof, and they're gone. But the scripture tells us quite the opposite. The ungodly will have a resurrection but they will have a resurrection unto death, eternal damnation, and not to life. When we decide who we follow, when I was thinking of poison, choosing your poison, I was thinking of chemo. Chemo is a form of poison. But it, the idea behind chemo is to go in and to kill all the bad without killing the host. And then we have the other poison on the other side that is taken, say cyanide, and it's just made to kill. I know there are some forms of it that help in healing, but for the most part, when you take it, you die. When we come to know God, and that's a, that's a, that's a lifelong process for us. God in his word, in verse, in verse 6, verse 5 says, God knows, God knows the righteous. 
The word, the word there that is used is a very intimate word. It's used in Genesis uh, when, when Eve was, was, was brought forth to, to Adam and Adam declared who she was, bone of my bones. And then it says that, that Adam knew Eve. In good translation, in better translation, it says that, that Adam then had sexual relations with his wife. That word know, God knows you and me that well. He knows us intimately. What he wants for us is to know him in the same manner. He wants us to know him deeply. So he gives us his word. He gives us his Holy Spirit. When we commit ourselves to him, he approves of the way that we walk because we're walking in his way. He approves of our, of our motives in, in, in what we're doing because he has given us those motives. He approves of how we're walking because he's trained us to walk in that fashion. God guides us. He loves us. He resides within us. The ungodly will perish. And they will be condemned eternally to hell. Better yet, the lake of fire, the one that is reserved for Satan and for his demons. But you and I have a, have a choice to make. You and I can either, can either walk in the counsel of the wicked. We can walk in the way of the sinner or stand in the way of sinner. Or we can sit in the seat of scoffer. Or we can be the one who delights in God's word. The one who meditates on his word day and night. And don't play games with that. You meditate on his word. Read his word. Find out what God is telling you. And then focus and with, with purposeful move, go in the direction that God is leading you. Let me tell you a quick story about, about one who, who was a follower and not just a fan of Jesus. And I've got a few minutes. This man's name was William W. Uh, Borden of the Borden Dairy Corporation. I don't know if you've ever read any, anything about, I, I, I just had the privilege of reading some. I'm going to order his, his biography. Amazing. Uh, William Borden was, was born in 1887 to, to the Borden family, of course. But before, before he turned 16 in 1904, graduated from high school, he had already committed his life to Jesus Christ. He had already confirmed in his heart and told his family that he would be a follower of Jesus Christ and do whatever he was called to do for Christ. He had two, two great sayings, or actually more than two, but the first one was, say no to self and yes to Jesus every time. Not once in a while, or not just when the crisis was there, but every time. And in, in, in graduating from high school, he wrote in his Bible, no reserves. When he graduated from high school, his father, his father and mother sent him on a, on, on a one-year uh, world tour. In the midst of that tour, when he was in China, he wrote back to his folks. And he said that he had, he had found what he wanted to do. As, as, as a profession. He wanted to be a missionary to the Kansu 
people in China. And that's what he wanted to do. When he came back off the, the world tour, it was a vacation for him. His father insisted that he begin his studies at Yale before taking off as a missionary. Being righteous in his heart, he did exactly what his father wanted him to do, and he began, he began to attend Yale. In his first, in his first uh, year at Yale, there was a, a general assembly that they had with the, uh, the students at Yale, and the dean came forth, and he told, he told the, the students that they needed to think in a fixed way. They needed to be focused on something. But he didn't tell them what. Uh, Bill Borden wrote later that he was troubled with that because the dean never told them what to focus on, how they could focus on, where they would find the strength and the ability to be able to focus and then continue to do it. But Bill was daily in the Word of God. And he noticed as he began to look at faculty members and he began to look at students, there was none who did good. No, not one. And he began a Bible study and a prayer meeting in the morning. His freshman year, before the end of his freshman year, he had 150 students attending his, his Bible studies and his prayer meetings, all in one. Simple. He would read from the Bible when they got there. They would pray. And then he would pick a promise out of the Scripture. And then he would begin to to, as they said, he would pray with such conviction on this promise that they were all amazed. One of his classmates said, when he first, made, he first met Bill, and he, this guy was a believer too, he first met Bill, he says, Bill Borden, Bill Borden had done something that we had not, and he had totally committed his life to Jesus Christ and determined to do God's will. He says, and this man had already done this. By the end of, of, of Bill's senior year, out of the 1,300 students in Yale, 1,000 were attending his Bible studies and his prayer meetings. Not satisfied with that, Bill Borden decided to take the remaining 300 and divide them, divide them within the group of 1,000 in order that they would be praying for those 300 day and night. If that wasn't enough, Bill... Bill also founded uh, uh, New Hope Ministries in New Haven that, that sought to the needy, gave clothing, gave food, and a few other ministries. One of his classmates said that any given night you could find Bill Borden in the middle of town in, in where they had the sleazy hotels and where all the, you know, all the, oh gosh, all the dirt, all the grit were hanging out. And they, you could find Bill there any night feeding the poor or counseling someone or entreating someone to come to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. When, when William Borden finished his, his time at Yale, he began his undergrad studies at Princeton. And he began to do the same work there. When he finished his undergrad work, he remembered that he was going to be a missionary to the Kansu people in China. And he got, he got on board, got on board a ship, and he was heading towards, towards China. And then he remembered he was going to be, he was going to be 
he was going to be missionary to a Muslim people. The Kansu people were Muslim people. So he decided to stop in Cairo in order to learn Arabic. Now, mind you, his father, his father, his father died before his senior year at Yale. So here, here we have William Borden focused on what he has to do. He gets on a boat, he heads towards China, and decides to go to, to Cairo to learn Arabic so that he would be well-equipped to, to teach and to witness to the people, uh, the Kansu people in China. Now, while he was there studying Arabic, William Borden contracted uh, spinal meningitis. And within two months, he was dead. He went to meet his savior, just hitting his 25th birthday. Now, some people would think that that was a waste. He never fulfilled what he was supposed to do. But in God's timetable and in God's agenda, this young man was convinced that he was one of those in a thousand, one of those in a hundred thousand. And he set out and purposed in his heart to accomplish everything that God had put in his heart to accomplish. This is the man, Borden is only one of them, but this is the man in Psalms 1. He was focused on God and he left everything to the rest of the world. This is what Psalm 1 has called us to. We are to choose to follow God, to be the one planted by streams of water, to be the one that the roots go down deep, the one whose fruit is ready. And if we do that, we expect God's fruit to be ready. We are the ones who delight in his word. We are the ones to meditate on it day and night. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have given us examples in history. And even as, as we're here in, in, in this sanctuary, there are those within the midst of us that are making that kind of history. God, that everyone here and those that are joining us on the Internet would take what your word has to say seriously, Lord. That we're not just on the sidelines and that we're not just flipping the penance you know, thank you, Lord Jesus, hooray, 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 but that we're in it to be solid followers, fully developed in Jesus Christ. May we take your word seriously. We make it part of our, uh, of, of our deepest parts daily, Lord. May we come before you. I thank you for all that are here. I thank you for your love. I thank you how quick your word is. I thank you that you have us here for this particular time. I thank you for the encouragement that comes through your word. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.